Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Adams, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. In today's episode, we meet Danielle de la Fuente, the co-founder of the Amal Alliance. Danielle shares her background with us and what led her to create an NGO dedicated to supporting displaced and disenfranchised children. She walks us through the programs offered by the Amal Alliance, the lessons learned from working in these hard-to-serve areas, and what all of us should be thinking about when we're supporting children wherever they may be learning. Danielle, you participated in a roundtable a little while ago on SEL and Student Voice, and we had really good feedback and people were asking about the work that you do, and I just thought we have to get her back on for a podcast to go a little bit more deeply into who you are and the work that you've been doing and the Amal Alliance, which is really exciting to hear about. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so glad that it resonated well with the audience. So Danielle, I had the pleasure of meeting you a couple of years ago, and I was just completely blown away by this fabulous young woman who was doing really important global work. And, you know, my background running a school district, we had a lot of kids that came in. Canada takes in a lot of refugees, and we had a lot of kids that were coming from war-torn countries or countries where there had been some type of a natural disaster so a lot of refugees coming in and we had them welcomed into our schools. But, you know, when I met you and you talked so vividly about your experience being right out in the field with them, I was fascinated and still am today. Oh, I'm so glad that we got to meet right before, you know, the end of the world. <laughs> so, but yes, no, definitely. And I'm happy to provide you a little bit more context of what we do. So let me know how you kind of want to dig deep into what better serve the listeners. You bet, Danielle. Danielle, first, talk to us a little bit about yourself. I know that you started off, you kind of did diplomatic work, and you were with the U.S. Department of Defense. And how did that work end up getting you to a point where you decided that you had to start an NGO and an NGO that would serve these children that you had come across? How did that experience link into what you're doing now? So um, exactly what you said. So I was working previously, not only with the Department of Defense, but several embassies. So I started off my career wanting to be a diplomat. Um, so I worked for the embassy of Argentina and the British embassy. And then it quickly dawned on me that I wasn't British and I wasn't Argentinian and I wasn't sure what I was doing. <laughs> so um, I ended up getting a job at the U.S. Department of Defense, specifically for the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies. Very, very long name, you know, one of these acronyms that turns into the NISA Center. Um, and essentially what I was doing was uh, like eHarmony for policy. So I would bring these countries together, or specifically ambassadors or generals, so very high level dignitaries to discuss four different topics, whether it be water security, energy security, issues of governance, or at the time it was the reconciliation, reconstruction and reintegration of Afghanistan. But I was always a little shocked at, you know, the fact that these conversations didn't go to a lot of places because people had this bias of where they were from or, you know, I'm supposed to not like you because this reason. And so I kept on thinking, I wish they had a bit more effective communication skills or just social skills in general that could potentially avoid these circumstances and these meetings that we were already in. And I thought we should be teaching children how to prevent conflict versus trying to resolve it after the fact. So I went back to school. I did a master's in peace and conflict studies. 
And I honed in on intergenerational trauma and that whole role that it has on the next generation of violence. And right around the time my, my grandmother had passed away, I was grieving. So of course, what I did was go take a kids yoga teacher training class because that's what every grieving person does, right? And so, and so I did my kids yoga teacher training in Greece. And it was right around the time that it was the peak of the refugee crisis coming into Europe. And so I thought, I'm in Greece. I want to go see the situation firsthand. I want to speak to the kids. I really want to understand what's happening, you know, instead of just watching it on the news. And I was really shocked when I did finally manage to enter in a refugee camp. First of all, it was so difficult. And so I was determined that I wasn't going to leave without, you know, really understanding the situation. But then after having seen the conditions that they were living in, hearing the stories that the children told me, their departure from their country of origin, uh, things that happened in transit, just really horrific things that no child should ever live through. I couldn't leave with that information and not do anything about it. And one, one thing that I noticed was that all the organizations were really focusing on the basic needs, and I'm not discounting them, super important, food, shelter, water. But what happens when you've survived all of this? What happens when you might be an unaccompanied minor and you don't know anything about your parents and you're in this new land and it's a very foreign and it's a different language? I mean, there's all sorts of things that are, you know, happening psychologically, just emotionally, all of these things that need to be addressed aside from having food and water. And so I found this niche that really just wasn't being filled. And so take all of a sudden my newly found kids yoga teacher training and those things that I was doing with countries, which were really essentially peace building. And I thought, why aren't we doing this with kids? And we can use kids yoga and mindfulness as a vehicle, as a methodology to really kind of dig deep and teach these very difficult concepts to very young children. And so that's how it all started. Um, I love, Danielle, how you talk about the idea of instead of investing your time in trying to help adults resolve conflict, you decided that you would focus on working with children so that they can avoid conflict. And that's a huge move. And, you know, with your lived experience and seeing those children and the conditions that they were in and what they were going through, that pivoted you into an amazing piece of work that you're doing now. And it's fascinating to hear where that all came from. Tell us a little bit about the Amal Alliance. And, you know, I like how you describe it. Whenever we're thinking of organizations or, or programs, you kind of have to think, well, what are the buckets that we're going to be paying attention to? And I love how you described the four pillars. And those four pillars of being social-emotional learning and early childhood development and psychosocial support and peace building. And, you know, when you look at your website and you walk through those, you think, wow, that is an amazing combination. So tell us a little bit about each of the pillars. Sure, of course. So when we started the organization, we really just wanted to hone in first on the aspect of healing, so addressing that trauma. But then just providing the very basics of an education and those skills that children will need to thrive. Because unfortunately, most of these children have very limited access to education, if any access to education. So they're now susceptible to all sorts of other security risks from human trafficking and exploitation and child marriage, et cetera. And so if they're sitting idle, that boredom time or that time that they're bored is actually very, very dangerous. 
And so we wanted to fill that for a few things. So bucket number one, social emotional learning, which I think has been a little bit of what we're most famous for, is combining all of those skills that will really make a child reach their full potential. So helping them understand their emotions, how to manage them. So it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be angry, sad. But how do you take that and channel it in a way that's healthy and you can express what you want to say in a very, very positive manner? Um, How do you build relationships when you may have had horrible experiences that now you don't trust or you're afraid to build relationships? So that's sort of the first thing. Um, The second bucket, psychosocial support, is very similar to the first bucket. So I always like to refer to this pyramid of psychosocial support, which is best described by INEE. For those that don't know what INEE is, it's the Inter-Network Agency for Education and Emergencies. And the triangle has sort of four stages. And so you have the more drastic cases would be at the top of the triangle, and that would require obviously a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a much more formal intervention. But the other three stages can be addressed by rebuilding relationships by, you know, teaching children to feel confident, to boost their self-esteem. So it's very, very closely linked to the social and emotional learning bucket. They're not the same, but they are definitely connected. So uh, the next bucket was early childhood development. And this was quite, kind of a happy accident. So in our first pilot, um, it was in Greece. We had invited a lot of women from the refugee community to train them to be our teachers. And I say teachers very loosely. Essentially, they were facilitating the class. But we had never taken into account that they didn't have anywhere to leave their children. So day one of training, there's all these babies and toddlers. And I'm, oh my goodness, what are we going to do with the babies? <laughs> and so they quickly became our models and our just, you know, our little examples in class. But down that line, it made a lot of sense to incorporate in the next stage an early childhood development module. Because one, there was all these children that were under the age of six. Two. How can, you know, eventually a a woman or a man or someone in the family get a job if they don't have a place to leave the child? So now it it becomes like if there's an early childhood development program, well, it's almost like a proxy of of babysitting or daycare. And so that's sort of how that came to life. And it's actually my favorite, favorite age range. And we we specifically work with the three to six-year-olds, not so much with the younger ones. Uh, We leave that to others, but their moms. Yeah, exactly. But we give them a little bit of tips and tricks that they can use. And then the last bucket is peace building. And that's really just basically woven into everything that we do. So whether we're teaching emotions or whether we're role playing, so, you know, you learn how to be empathetic, it's just put into it. And so whether it's about learning how to make a a responsible decision and what that could look like, it's just really planting seeds of peace. So that children can understand that you don't need to revert to violence and conflict. You can resolve things in an educated and very efficient way if you, you know, choose to do so. You have a choice to. It's such a great holistic program and we'll dive more into it. Let's talk a little bit about the children. Because many of our listeners, you know, we haven't experienced what you've experienced going into those informal settlements or refugee camps. Tell us a little bit about They're called displaced and disenfranchised children. Is there a difference between those two? How would you define those groups of kids? So I'm not a huge fan of labels, but unfortunately they are sort of buckets that uh, we refer to. So 
Displaced children is really just an umbrella term, all children that have been displaced. So whether you have been internally displaced in your country and you've had to relocate, whether you've had to, whether you have migrants that were forced to leave because of conflict, or you have migrants that were forced to leave because of a climate situation or emergencies as tsunamis, earthquakes. I mean, you name the situation, it can force displacement. So anyone that really has been forcibly displaced falls under that bucket. Um, we don't like to use the term refugees because oftentimes people think refugees is a particular category. It's really just actually a legal status. But so many other children that don't really fall under refugees but are still displaced. So that's sort of where that blanket term comes from. And, and disenfranchised really refers to almost every child, whether they be um, underprivileged or be in very impoverished situations, but really that don't have access to any sort of formal education system. So they, they've been deprived of their fundamental right to an education. And that's sort of how we kind of lump it together. But children are children. So even if they've been in a horrific situation or, you know, they might have the privilege of growing up in a very wealthy family, you know, in, in you know, the United States, for example, the one thing I've noticed is how resilient they are. And they, they just want to play and they want to laugh and they want to make friends, but there needs to be an opportunity to do so. And so we kind of restore that opportunity by giving them a semblance of a routine, a childhood, and providing those tools. Sometimes I think people are shocked to realize that many children grow up in these informal settlements or refugee camps, and their whole childhood, they're born there, or they start there as very young children, and they are in them until they are adults. And I think that's hard for most of us to fathom. Danielle, tell me a little bit, where is the Amal Alliance? Which countries are you working in right now? And I'm sure that varies over time as crises emerge in different parts of the world. Yes. And actually, before I jump into that, I just want to make a note. So what you said is so true, because the average that a child spends in a refugee camp, so living in a camp, is about 17 years. I mean, that is not a short period. And, and that number continues to grow. So I think it's just something that's really important for listeners to understand. They're not there for three, four months. They're there for years on end, um, well into their adulthood. And Danielle, before we get on to the countries, that's why these kinds of programs are so important to them. Like you said, you know, you're working with three to six-year-olds. You start with that group. Most of our children would either be with a parent at home or they would be going to some type of a, of a daycare, either in someone's home or a more formalized daycare situation. But they would be being socialized there. They would be having their early learning. They would be developing oral language. And they have the routine of having something to do each day. And that's what I think is so incredible. Because for those of us who have not experienced refugee camps or those settlements, just the fluidity of what happens. And like you said, if there aren't some of those opportunities, then boredom comes to being. I think it's just fabulous of that idea of putting programs in place so that these little kids get an opportunity to see what it's like to have that routine of being a child and learning. Yeah. And I think one thing that's super important is not only would, you know, children in sort of Western settings have a much more, I, I quote unquote, normal early learning experience, but the children in the camps are living in a really hostile environment. So it's a continuous chronic and toxic stress. 
And not only does that really affect their development, but that goes into all sorts of other things down the line. I mean, there's research that it affects their health, et cetera. But going back to the other question that you asked, <laughs> so, so pre-pandemic, we were working in Greece, Lebanon, and Turkey. And when the pandemic hit, we had to cancel all classes, as everyone else did in the world. But we really didn't know what to do initially because it wasn't like we could just switch over to Zoom school because most of these locations don't have devices, don't have internet. So we formed a consortium of organizations, actually with one that you're on the executive board, Karanga and Salzburg Global Seminar and Learning in Times of Crisis. And we, we came up with a solution that was actually feasible. We, and we thought, okay, if you're a parent, you have a phone. You might not have anything else, but you have a phone. And we communicate with you via WhatsApp. So why don't we send you tidbits of information via WhatsApp? So at the very least, one, you know, someone still cares. And two, you can come up with activities and coping mechanisms that you can do even if you don't have any resources. So it was a podcast, um, but it was essentially a very long voice note being sent via WhatsApp. And we had it in four languages by April 2020 uh, because the Qatar Foundation had come along and they said, we'll translate it for you. We're so excited. And it's shocking because at that time, organizations were still trying to figure out what they were going to do. And so maybe it wasn't the best solution, but it was a solution. And we offered it and people just started adopting these audios. So it ended up reaching about 160,000 users via WhatsApp by April 2020. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Like think of all the children that benefit that. And you know what, Danielle, not just the children, the parents. Imagine how wonderful a mom or a dad would feel knowing that they were getting a little tidbit coming in on their phone of knowing a little something that was going to make a difference for their child as they're growing up. I can't imagine what that must have been to them. And obviously to get 160,000 people uh, taking part in, and benefiting from it, it says it all right there, right? Yeah. And so there, though, was the game changer, because little did I know that this was going to change the entire direction of the organization. And so we end up getting a call from UNHCR and IDEO. Um, they're a design firm in Silicon Valley. And they're like, we absolutely love your podcast. Could you do this with your curriculum? And we thought, probably. Why not? Let's try. <laughs> and so um, we were asked to apply to the UN COVID-19 challenge. It was, uh, it was almost like the Bachelor of the Humanitarian Edition. <laughs> and so we went from like the top 80 to top 16 to the top 10 and we made it to the finish line and it was unbelievable because uh, I remember voting I definitely remember voting <laughs> we, we made it we made it to the finish line and little did I know that that wasn't the hard part the hard part was just about to start and so we we got a grant to develop an education and emergency prototype and what it was was to deliver this podcast on a digital platform so with a digital workbook so now we turned what we were normally doing in class into this online version where now the audio was the teacher. So now anyone could teach. You could be illiterate, you could be someone that had zero teaching background, had never been through training, but if you could press play, <laughs> you could teach the class and facilitate. And so we piloted in Bangladesh, peak of the pandemic when we were in lockdown, very thankful to the government for allowing us to do that. And the results were phenomenal. I mean, more than we could have ever imagined. We saw about a 16.5% increase in the well-being of the kids in 10 weeks time. Um, 
parents were happy. Teachers were happy. I mean, there was secondary effects with the academic learning that we weren't even trying to, you know, achieve. So suddenly we had, by the way, the program's called Colors of Kindness. So all of a sudden we had this really fantastic tool that worked for all out of school children. And now not just the displaced populations, like all kids were out of school. So where we're at now is it's turned into so many different adaptations. I've lost count. It's won numerous awards. Um, we got a funder to join us and allow us to create an evidence space. So we partnered up with the Easel Lab of Harvard Graduate School of Education, and we're going to launch it in Greece with the Ministry of Education on board in January. And we're so excited because it's going to be a formal test to integrate it into the formal system. Because if it can kind of be integrated into the formal system, this is something that other countries can learn from, they can adopt, they can localize, and it can really just reach so many children that suffering from the effects of the pandemic. And you know what, Danielle, that's exactly why I wanted you to come on and share your story with the listeners, because the primary story is really interesting. Like I said, most of us don't have that experience and hearing what you're doing is absolutely heartwarming. But the second part of it is that you know, those of us that are teaching in very well-established education systems, A, we support children that have come from war-torn countries, from climate crises, etc., where they come into our systems and we're supporting them. We also have children that are dealing with trauma just from the lives that they're living, whether they're living in extreme poverty or there's violence in the community or in their household. There are so many children, sadly, in all of our education systems that are dealing with trauma. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how your program is starting to reach some of those children as well. Yeah. So as I mentioned, it's now evolved and we're so grateful because this, uh, this is something we did definitely didn't uh, foresee. And so we started realizing that we could reach more children if we leverage technology. So moving beyond just communities that have no internet or communities that have low tech. So we partnered with different people. So we partnered with Learning Equality, um, which is this fantastic learning management system called Calibri, and it, it works offline. And so it is a fantastic tool for teachers and, and learners alike, because now if the content's preloaded, then it can work offline. So there you have one sort of community. Then we partnered with Education Above All, which has this internet-free resource bank. And they have partners literally all around the globe. So we wanted to create a truly offline version. So if you don't have a device, you really don't have internet, you can still at least have access to quality content. And at that point, this was going to go well beyond just essentially to anyone. They, they partner with different ministries around the world. And so we created this SEL workbook. And I was actually blown away to find out a few weeks ago that it has been downloaded in 175 countries. I mean, granted, some countries not as much as others, but I, I mean, but still the fact that it has been downloaded in so many locations without any sort of marketing whatsoever really is a testament to what is needed in all of these communities. And SEL is just at the core. And now we're trying to figure out how we can work with different school districts because this program in itself doesn't change curriculum because it's so hard to revamp education systems. I mean, that's not something that's going to happen anytime soon. They've been forged in a different century and haven't changed since. But if you can introduce SEL in these small bite-sized sort of lessons and add it in 
Well, then you're not changing the system. You're just complementing what already exists, but enhancing it in a way with what children actually need right now. Because even if you stick a child in a classroom, they're not learning. They're dealing with anxiety, with depression, with all this fear and uncertainty. So you really need to make sure that they're ready to learn so that they can learn. Danielle, I think you're bringing up a point that it's one of the things that I think that we've really gained from coming out. I'm going to say the other side of the pandemic, even though we're in the midst of yet another wave and yet another variant. But, you know, it used to be so compartmentalized. There was formal education. And then there were some smatterings of things on the outside. And I think what we've learned since the pandemic, or it's really been reinforced, that formal education and informal education is really, really important. And you are always kind of playing in the informal, and now it's spilling out into the formal. And, you know, in other situations, it had been more formal spilling out into the informal. But I think that's one of the things that we have to take kids where they are. And if we can influence them both in their everyday schooling, if they're fortunate enough to have that, or through their extracurriculars, or through their community programs, or the program that's happening in the informal settlement. I mean, we take children where they are in the context of where they are. And if the programming is really good, it'll work in any of those settings, right? I couldn't agree more. And the arts, exercise, mindfulness, these are all key elements because Children need to move, they need to laugh, they need to interact, they're missing these social elements. So even if they're, I mean, now that children have been at home for such extended periods, I mean, it's not the same, even if they have siblings or with their family. And so now you have this generation that really isn't used to people. And I've seen it just with adults even. So, um, you know, as you and I know, we've attended many, many a conference. And I just started attending conferences again, um, you know, before the variant was picking up some steam. And even in adults, you could see a very unusual interaction. You know, people forgot how to connect. They forgot how to interact. So there's this level of awkwardness. And if adults are struggling, can you imagine a child that still hasn't really sedimented all of those different understandings and social cues? Well, they need a little bit of extra support. Absolutely. And that's where when you think of the children that your programs were originally focused on, who could imagine children in more need of those types of supports? But as you said, especially after two years of children being out of that socializing environment, that they need some of those supports to help them. I think the other thing I like about it, Danielle, is that it really blends nicely the concept of learning and well-being. And, you know, in some ways, I think you might have been a little bit ahead of your time because you were thinking about well-being before there was as much kind of global discourse on the concept. But, you know, when you're working with those three to six-year-olds, you're setting them up for a readiness to learn because you're building that skill set that will help them get there and giving them a sense of well-being that they didn't have before running towards your program or having their parent interact with them and that. It's just so important. No, I completely agree with you. And and thank you for the kind words. I think despite the fact that the pandemic has posed so many challenges, I actually think it's been a blessing in disguise because it's really shown light on the things that aren't working and need to change and and also shown light on things that people were taking for granted. So like you said, well-being, mental health, very important things. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a child or an adult. These are key, key elements for you to function as a human. And so now we have that opportunity to say, okay, 
well, what can we add in? How can we change things for the better? How can we come out of this pandemic and actually learn from it? And so I'm very happy to see that so many schools are embracing social and emotional learning, although as before, it was a bit more taboo. I also am so happy to see that, you know, mindfulness and all of these elements are also coming a bit more to the surface because children in the circumstances that we work might not have anything, but everyone has their breath. And so if you can figure out how to manage and regulate your emotions using only your breath and movement, well, now you have a skill set, a tool that you can take anywhere with you and no one can take from you. And I think that's something that we don't need these very fancy things. And sometimes we have all these additional things in classrooms or, or we need these dice or we need these balls. No, we really don't. All of that enhances the experience, but you really can teach people to use the tools that they have that are already in need. And that's what we're trying to kind of build. It's interesting what you're saying, Danielle. I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a fellow by the name of Rui Marquez out of Portugal. And he's doing an Ubuntu Leadership Academy. And it's really simple concepts. And it works beautifully. And it's having an incredible impact on the schools there in Portugal. And, and like you said, the concepts that you're talking about, really simple, easy to administer. Anyone can do it. It can be the parent. It can be someone in the community. It doesn't have to be always a qualified teacher. It's all of those people. And we're helping. We're taking those little ones and giving them some skills that not only will help them wherever they are during that period of their life, but it will help them all the way through their lives. And that's what we really need to be thinking about in education. How do we give children the skills, help them develop the skills to be well and to be able to become lifelong learners? If we do that in our informal and our formal education systems, this world is going to be in a better place. And one of the things that we focus a lot on is empathy. And the reason this comes about a lot is you really need to understand and empathize with others. So compassion, we touch on compassion, we touch on all sorts of things, but especially now in a time that, you know, diversity and inclusion is really at the forefront, you know, we're trying to understand how we can better our systems. If a child can accept, first of all, themselves, but and accept and love themselves, but also accept and love and appreciate the differences of other children, other people in their community. Now you're starting to build tolerance in a way that's so natural. And then you start to see people in other eyes. And, and it's so beneficial to do that at a very young age, because oftentimes we have these huge divides and, and we're focusing on religion or color or all of these other aspects, but children are not born hating. They're born like a clean slate. You know, that hatred is taught and unfortunately it passes on. And so if we can just teach children to really embrace other people for those differences and value their own uniqueness and how they can contribute to the world, I mean, it really goes a long way. We do this, oftentimes we do a superhero academy in our classes and the kids, you know, start off with their superhero traits, like understanding what they are. And then, then they build their superhero strength. And then at the end, they've graduated and fully become a superhero. And, and it's kind of a, a really wonderful experience. And it's so fun. <laughs> but, um, but they start understanding that everyone's a superhero in their own right. And you can, it builds their self-esteem, it builds their confidence, their self-worth. And if you're in a good place, you will respect and see that of somebody else. I think if uh, the one thing that we can accomplish, if we can have children growing up to be tolerant and appreciative of others, 
the world would not be in the place that it is now, and it will be in a better place when they are uh, leading the show, shall we say. Danielle, you've had an incredible career and incredible experience. There are lots of teachers and school principals and district leaders that come on and listen to these podcasts. Based on your experiences, which are, you know, different than many of ours, what advice would you give to them as far as thinking about their schools and having their kids in their schools? What would your advice be to them? They need to be well themselves. So oftentimes, teacher well-being is so overlooked. And if they're not in a good place, if their mental health is not in a good place and they're not doing all the self-care practices that they need, that will come across in the learnings. But also take some time to really understand the concepts because they're not very difficult and there's really fun and playful methods to teach. Um, We love to use affirmations as well, you know, to, uh, you know, uh, I can calm down if I'm upset, you know, simple things like this, but also just positive teaching methods. So words do matter. Body language matters. So much of communication is nonverbal. And so I would just really, really say to the teachers, to the principals, like, take care of yourselves because that really will reflect in how these children are coming forth and explore new practices. So maybe there's something that's a bit unconventional, but why not try it out? Our program, for instance, is an open source. We'd be happy to have as many people use it as possible. We're happy to receive feedback as well as how we can better it because really their input is actually what makes the program better because we do take that into account from teachers and facilitators and and each iteration keeps getting more and more creative. Danielle, it's a perfect way to end our conversation and we'll make sure that we put your Amal Alliance website, make sure that we have the link there so that people can jump on and take a look at the resources because the point that you make about teachers and principals and their well-being It has been really tough. We know it's been tough on the kids, but boy, oh boy, we know how tough it is on our teachers and our principals trying to navigate the changing situation that's happening daily in their schools. And so that advice to think about themselves first and then be able to think of some new ways to help make sure that their little kitties are well in their classrooms. And when I say little kitties, that's everything from four-year-olds to 18-year-olds. That's great advice. And uh, I'm sure there will be many people that will be very curious about your programs and will want to dive in and take a look. And if I can just add one other thing to the teacher well-being, it doesn't need to be something very grandiose. So we use an emotions thermometer and it's emoji based. It's really cute. And children check their emotional temperature just to see first and get in the habit of identifying what it is that you're feeling. Because if you can't identify it, you can't correct it. And then we practice gratitude. Every single class, we do a sunny day where, you know, a child expresses something that they're grateful for, maybe someone or something. And gratitude is a very, very powerful mechanism. So you might not have a lot of time in the day, that's fine. But if you can take the time to write one or two things that you're grateful for in a day, it's actually noted. I think the research shows that after 30 days, it really does alter your mood and your outlook. So get in a little bit of dosage of something that makes you happy and see the more positive aspects of life. Danielle, I can tell you that I know one person that I'm very grateful for, and that's you. Like I said, when I met you, I was so impressed by you and the work that you're doing and uh, knew that I and others would have lots to learn from you. So we'll end this off today with a huge thanks, but I'll be knocking on your door again because I'm sure there's going to be educators that are interested in where's your next project and what countries are you working in and how are you supporting kids and their families and their teachers? 
Oh, thank you, Jenna. The feeling is mutual and I'm happy to help. And thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Danielle for joining our podcast today and for sharing her inspirational work supporting vulnerable children in need of education and social development. Many of the children in our education systems have experienced and are experiencing trauma as well. Danielle has provided us with some concrete examples of how we can adapt instruction to best meet their needs. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may be interested in a roundtable called SEL and Youth Voice, where Danielle was a featured panelist. You can find it on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Portal. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time for our podcast with Juan Manuel Lopera as he walks us through how teachers and leaders can help students develop the skills to be entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm.